0: So uh on Friday, we cleaned our house and we got out all of the boxes and we be- we began to christmasfy uh, our house and uh part of my responsibility in this project is to get the Christmas lights up on the house and so i I went up on the roof and i and I strung out our lights and um, and I thought it looked really i thought it looked good i mean i thought it looked i was i was I was happy with my work and then um That night, you know, we drove in and it was dark and the lights were on, and I I turned to my my family in the car, I said, um, I said, hey, you guys, did you see the lights? What do you think about the lights? And um, uh, one of my daughters, Lucy, she said, dad, it's kind of underwhelming. (laughs) And then she said, why can't you be more like Ryan Wiley? And this is the Wiley's house. And I think it looks really good, um, but not as good as, this is more, that's my house. (laughs) That's more rustic. The other thing, when I was showing these pictures before this the I was going through these, and and Natalie said, Josh, you should have Ryan take those pictures. All right, why don't we just have Ryan <laughs> do everything now? <laughs> you know, Christmas is truly the coziest time of year, and Christmas lights, I mean, they just make you feel all warm inside, right? And nostalgic. I, I love lights. I love the warmth of Christmas. Our home, probably like many of yours, never feels more homey than it does on Christmas. And uh, I, I, think, I think it's true that all of us have this latent, kind of like um, gravitational pull in our hearts towards home. You know, and it's, it's one of the questions that we ask at this time of year. Are you going home for Christmas? Or uh, are your kids or your grandkids, are they coming home for Christmas? And, and I think all of us, we have this deep longing for home. And of course, most of the year, that, that, that longing, it lies dormant. And it, and it kind of awaits for, you know, chestnuts roasting on the open fire and uh, the scent of pine trees to call forth our latent desires into our more conscious awareness. And we have our sayings, you know, home, sweet home. And home is where the heart is. And we all long to be at home with ourselves and with one another. We all want to be in that place where everyone knows our name and they're always glad we came and... um, and 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 I, I know, I know for, for, for some of you, you know, going home is something you look forward to. And you're planning it, you're getting ready. And maybe if you're an empty nester, uh, you know, you're you're looking forward to you're longing for the kids to come home, for the grandkids and and the games and the fun and the loud uh, you know, laughter and whatnot to fill the house. And you just long for your home to be filled with people, and, and home just it, it conjures up images of warmth and togetherness. And there, there are others. I know for some of you, home is not so much like that. Home is kind of a complicated issue for, I think, a lot of us. And, um, and 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 the homes we grew up in, they were dysfunctional, and, and we endured wounds, and uh, or, or maybe you lost someone, and you're going to be you know celebrating Christmas this year with somebody who who, who was or without somebody who was there last year, and, and you just feel this ache and this pain because of that loss, and 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 some of some some feel like you never knew that place where you belong, where you felt at home with yourself and with others. You know, we've been in a series over the last several weeks, and and we're bringing that series to a conclusion today. Uh, This series is called Human. And we've we've been talking about these big existential, these really important questions of life. You know, who am I? And why am I here? And where am I? And what's wrong with the world? And, and we're bringing these big questions into dialogue with the opening chapters of Genesis. And, and we've been exploring together, what does it mean to be human? And today, what I, what I want to suggest, what I want to argue, and what I think we see in the text is one of the things that it means to be human is to be made for a home that we have lost. It's to be made for a home that we have lost. And what I want to do is I want to invite you now, I just want to invite you to enter into the narrative of of Genesis 2 and 3, kind of we're going to do a little overview, and and we're going to look at the first home of that, that first archetypal couple, Adam and Eve, and in their story, in their original home, we're going to see something about our story and our original home. And the story is beautiful, it's evocative, it's profound, and it, and, it, and it renders this very complex picture of our humanity. And again, you know, um, I think sometimes when we come to this text, we come asking all of the wrong questions. We want to know, there, there's a talking snake. Did, did snakes talk? You know, and, and he named the animals, did he, did he name the t Rex? And um, and then they had kids, and then they got married. Who did they marry, you know? And then, like, we come to this text reading it very literalistically, very in a very wooden, literalistic fashion. And in so doing, we can miss the profundity and the depth and the beauty because what we're reading here is archetypal literature. It is latent with metaphor and symbol, and it is powerful, and it is defining for us. And, and and it's defining for knowing who we are and what it means to inhabit this reality. And I, I want to begin, I want to begin looking at this story by just kind of setting it in the frame of what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. So in the beginning, God creates, and God looks at all he has made, and he renders his verdict. He says, it is very, very good. God delights in his creation, and it is this place of beauty. The trees are good for food, and they are a delight to behold. It is a place of meaningful work. It is the place where uh, the, the human creatures are there working the ground and they're carrying and tending the garden. And it is a place of rich and fulsome relationship. Uh, the the husband and his wife come together as one. And there is a oneness, there's a unity, there is community, there is wholeness. And it is the space, it is in this garden that God himself dwells with his people. God, the text says, um, walks in the garden in the cool of the day. And the the imagery is meant to evoke for us this, this picture of Communion and fellowship with God, walking with God, and we, we use that that phrase even metaphorically in, in our in our in our language. you know this is somebody who walked through my life with me, and, and you 're saying they were they were in fellowship and rich communion with me, and in the beginning. There there was this rich relationship with God and this this full relationship with each other and there was beauty to behold and there was goodness to consume and there was freedom. You could go and eat of every tree of the garden. There was also responsibility and meaningful work and there was also some limitations, living within our creaturely human limitations. There is the gift in the garden of limitations, living in God's world on God's terms. And, um, and and I think a phrase that kind of captures, captures kind of that original picture, that original goodness is the very last phrase that we read in Genesis 2 before it all goes wrong. And the text reads like this. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That's a powerful phrase, and, and don't read that simply as speaking, you know, kind of literalistically of physical nakedness. No, this is speaking of vulnerability and trust and safety, where you feel so at home in yourself and in your body and, and with, with, with one another, and you feel known, and you're not afraid to be known, You feel known and and understood. And there is this closeness and this connection with each other and with God in that space. They were both naked and they felt no shame. There was nothing to hide. Uh, there, There was nothing to be embarrassed of. There was nothing they wished wasn't known about themselves. No, they were naked and they knew no shame. And so this is the original picture we're getting of the creation. But then... Then the the tenor of the narrative changes. And introduced into this beautiful, lovely garden is a serpent, a dangerous and uninvited serpent. Now, we, we don't know where the serpent came from. The text doesn't disclose much about the identity of the serpent. And we wonder: like, why, why, why are there such dangerous creatures in this garden? And, and yet here, the serpent comes, and the serpent comes, and it says, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, all of a sudden, introduced into this harmony is disharmony in, into a world of trust and safety and vulnerability, there is a word of mistrust and the serpent says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, did God tell them they could not eat of any tree of the garden? No, he said you could eat of every tree of the garden. There's just one tree that you cannot eat. And the woman was quick to address this. She said to the serpent, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she corrects the misinterpretation of the serpent. But now the serpent comes back strongly with a word of mistrust. This serpent, you know, long before Nietzsche, you know, there was this serpent who was the master of suspicion, you know. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The essence of what the serpent is saying is God is trying to withhold something from you. There's some good thing that God is restricting you from, and if you just partake, you will receive this thing you're missing out on. So he appeals to uh, FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out for this woman. And sadly, the woman is convinced by the argument. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Her husband, interestingly, was with her. He's been there, but he's been silent passively sitting back and doing nothing, not the last husband in human history who passively sat back and did nothing, and the results are tragic. It says, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. All of a sudden, there, there is this appeal once again to this vulnerability, this openness, and they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. Now they have knowledge and they are terrified of what they're seeing about themselves and before God, and now they want to hide. And so they, they get fig leaves to cover up those things they are ashamed of. And again, we have been using fig leaves, fig leaves of status and resume, and where we went to college and what we've accomplished and our carefully curated image of ourselves we present on social media to cover up, we don't want people to see our true selves, so we're always self-presenting, trying to present a picture, trying to put fig leaves. Well, they're not very effective because when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden on the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees." Now they are hiding. They're hiding from God, the God who made them, the God who loves them. Now they are hiding. They have run. And notice God's response. God calls out to the the man and to the wife. The Lord God called out to the man and he said to him, where are you? You know, this question is not put there because God is trying to gather information. This question is put to Adam so that Adam might discover something about Adam. It's an important question for us all to ask, isn't it, at some point in our life? Where are you? Where are you right now? Where have you been? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice into the the harmony now has come shame and fear. Two of the great psychological problems that make us feel so homeless and homesick in this world. Like we're not okay, we're not at home. I feel shame and I'm afraid that you might find me out. And so he said, I I hid myself. And now God asks another question. He said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God God is asking a question to evoke a confession. And, And the man, in some sense, confesses, but only in sort of a twisted sort of way. He said, well, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And so he blame shifts. First, it's, uh, the woman gave me the fruit, and God, you gave me the woman, and so I'm not to blame. And then God turns to the woman, he says, what is this you have done? Again, a question, what, what is this you have done? When was the last time you asked that question? Like, what is this you have been doing to the people around you, to yourself, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. she too blame shifts. And then God doesn't address the serpent, but then God acts as judge, and he issues a sentence first upon the serpent. The serpent is cursed. And then he turns to the woman, and the woman is, is now experiencing a state of alienation, and there is problems in relationships, power struggles are introduced into the male-female relationship. And then he turns to the man and there's pain in the work that God had given them to do. And essentially what's happening is that because of their turning away from God, because of their alienation from God, now alienation is spreading everywhere, It's touching everything. It touches work. It touches relationship with the the, the created world. It touches our our relationship with ourselves and and our bodies. And and the world now is experiencing pain and fracture and discord. And we are now homeless and homesick. And and then the, the chapter closes like this. It says, "'Then the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden.'" to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What is that? That is exile. The the human creatures were made for a particular home, and now the human creatures are sent out in exile from their home, away from Eden, away from paradise, away from life as it was meant to be lived. And then the story ends. And what I want to do now is I just want to stand back and I want to make three observations, three things that we learn from this story. And the first observation is this. Number one, we are made for a home that we have lost. The Adam and Eve story is your story and it's my story. We like them have been made for a home that we have lost. In a manner of speaking, we are all homeless and homesick. You know, in Genesis, you know, 2 and 2 and 3, God is the great homemaker and he makes a home for humanity where we live in de- delight and enjoy God's creation. We were made for the garden of God to be with God, but we have fractured relationship with God. We have been made for love and, and no parting, and no decay and no disease and no disability and no fruitlessness and dry, barren, lifeless marriages or souls or lives, no distorted families, no, no, no destruction in God's good creation, life in the presence of God, responsibly living in God's creation with God's people. This is our original home, the true country you and I were made for. But we chafed against God's authority and we were exiled from the garden, our true home, and we have been marked by exile ever since, by this under the surface longing to get our way back home, to be at home with ourselves and with each other and with our bodies and with this world, which leads to our second observation. Because we are no longer in the home that we were made for, we are now estranged and alienated and exiled from our true home. You know, in chapter four, right after chapter three, if you're taking notes, you can write that down, Um, chapter four, anyway. But we read the story of Cain killing his brother Abel, alienated relationships, And after he kills Abel, we read about him lost, wandering, the text says, east of Eden. And we all live east of Eden. We have all found ourselves lost and wandering from our true condition. We are all exiles from our true home. And listen, if you will stop and you will pay attention, you will hear the echoes of our great human exile everywhere. You know, it's there in the philosophers, you know, Marx and Heidegger and uh, the existentialists, you know, Sartre Sartre and Camus and Soren Kierkegaard. You know, when they sought to name the human condition, one of the most common ways in which they described the human condition, different though they were in how they thought about these things, one of the core words that they all agreed on is that human beings were fraught with alienation and estrangement. And, and they they described it in different ways. You know, Marx and Engels, you know, said that that we're, we're alienated from 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 our work and the proter pro the the, pro-terra, pro, pro-terra, the, the Lower classes are separated from the bourgeois, from the, the higher classes. And there's alienation there and alienation so we're not connected to the true end of our work. And Soren Kierkegaard talked about alienation from transcendence and, and, and Freud and Eric Frum and, and other psychologists have talked about an alienation that, that we experience within our own self. We don't feel comfortable within our skin. And, and, and it's there in the philosophers and in the psychologists we live in this world with a sense of estrangement where our longings and desires just don't quite fit the world we inhabit. And of course, it's there in our movies, you know, like The Wizard of Oz. And what is the phrase? There is no place like what? And, and Dorothy longs for the home. She longs for the world she was made for. You know, and and it's speaking this truth. We live in a world that just doesn't seem to fit us and suit us. And and that narrative trope has been played out again and again and again in in so many of our favorite movies, you know, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you know, one of the great Christmas movies, you know, the last 30 years, or was it 40 years? I don't know. What's that story about? John Candy is, is, with Steve Martin, they're trying to get home. And the tragedy is that the, the figure, the character John Candy plays, doesn't have a home to return to. And it's speaking something about the human condition. And Toy Story, you know, what is Toy Story about? The toys longing to get back home. And, uh, and, and, and even The Walking Dead, you know, TV series, 10-Year Run, You know, if you watch, by the way, I'm not advocating The Walking Dead. If you watch that, that's on you, not me. But I was reading an article about it a couple years ago. And and one of the things that they said is is that The Walking Dead is not about a zombie apocalypse. It's about alienation and estrangement. And it's there in our music. You know, uh, one of Taylor Swift's uh, songs is called Exile. And in it, she reflects upon an alienation that's happened in a relationship. And she says this. She says, I've seen this film before, and I didn't like the ending. You're not my homeland anymore, so what am I pretending now? You are my town. Now I'm in exile seeing you out. And it's like I'm I'm distance. There's alienation relationships, alienated relationships, And uh, in the 70s, Marvin Gaye sang, what's going on? And and there's this refrain in this song where he says, you know, we've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. And and it's a refrain that goes back and he he talks about everything that's wrong in our society. There's alienation in our relationships. And he's like, what's going on? It's not right. Things are not right. It's there in the Luminaires' Enduring Classic Ho, oh, hey, you know, the lead singer says sarcastically. So show me, family, all the blood that I would bleed. I don't know where I went wrong. I don't know where I belong. Alienation. We feel at odds with ourselves and with each other in the world. And just, if you pay attention to your own heart and life, it's there. You feel awkward or uncomfortable or just not right with yourself, and, 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 and there's, even in the best of relationships, it, it, sometimes it's falling short of what, what your heart seems to long for. We seem to long for a home that, that seems beyond accessible to us. And, and it's strange, isn't it? We can feel homesick at home even in the middle of Christmas, you know? And, and what, what is that, you know, and if we, if we are simply highly evolved bags of molecules, you know what Bertrand Russell called the accidental collocation of atoms, why this deep and latent longing for a home that we seem to have lost? Why the deep, under the surface ache for meaning and transcendence and love that will never end? Why this deep longing that could never be satisfied in this life? And let, let me just ask you, some of you are exploring Christianity. Maybe you're, you're dipping your toe uh, back in church after being away for a very long time. And, and let me just ask you, what do you do with that longing? I, I think even if, even if I'm stretching just with my words to try to touch on, I think what so many of us know in our experience like, what do you make of that deep longing for, for, for a kind of world that we don't seem to be able to, to, to reach? What do you do with that longing? And listen, there's only two answers you can give to that question. Only two answers about what to make of this longing for, for home. On the one hand, it, it, it could be. It could be a phantom of the brain, you know, a neurotic, fancy you know, a glitch in our biology? Or the other answer is, is that it could be the truest index of our real condition. You know, for my Doctor of Ministry course a few years ago, or um, program a few years ago, I took a class on C.S. Lewis, and, you know, the authors of the Chronicles of Narnia... And I spent a lot of time reading about Lewis and learning about Lewis. And one of the things that you may not know about C.S. Lewis, if you're kind of, you know, you only know kind of Chronicles of Narnia or whatever, or the movies, is that C.S. Lewis didn't become a Christian until his late 20s. And at that point in time in his life, he was teaching at Oxford. Uh, He was an academic genius, and he was an atheist, and, and his, 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 his realm of, of, of expertise was ancient mythology and poetry. And he just loved this stuff. He, he loved the classic stories. And, um, and he fought in the trenches of World War I in his, in his early 20s. And he, he, he experienced such pain and, and such grim realities of war. And yet he found this tension because he loved myth and fantasy and yet, yet deep, you know, he, he, he had this deep experience of, of the grim realities of the pains of this world. And he writes in his biography, Surprised by Joy, this. He says, nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. And nearly all I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. And that's one option, isn't it? But later, after his conversion to Christianity, after being convinced by his friend Tolkien that Christianity was indeed the only true myth, in a sermon he preached called The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, no, no, no. He said, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel now cut off. To be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache." Friends, what he's saying is simply this. You and I were made for bodies that would not grow old, for relationships that were not strained and difficult and full of wounds. We were made for love that never ends. You were made for significance and meaning and transcendence and God. To be at home in yourself, to be secure in yourself, to be secure in God. We were made for home and we have been estranged. We are lost. We are all lost. We have all lost our way and we become homeless and homesick. Here's the third observation from our story. But Jesus has come to bring us home. You know there's good news in this text. You know it ends with them being exiled from the garden, but this is just the beginning of the story. There's a little indication in the story itself of what God's ultimate plan throughout the story will be. In the story, God comes walking, almost incarnate, within the garden, calling out, where are you, searching for his lost human creatures. And friends, this is, in a nutshell, the story of the entire Bible. The creator of all things on a search for his lost human creatures. And that story, which began here in the garden and began to work itself out with God calling Abraham and building Abraham into a great nation, ultimately reaches its climax when God himself enters into his creation in Jesus and walks, as it were, back in the world, this broken, fractured garden, so that he might call out to us and do more than call out to us, actually work to bring us back home. And you know what's fascinating the, the Bible ends, the very last chapters of the Bible mirror the first two. And in the last chapters of the Bible, we're back in a garden, but now it's a city garden, a glorified garden. And in the very center of the garden, it says, is God's presence himself. In fact, it says, there was no need for a temple in the garden because God himself was the temple. In other words, God himself is home. God himself is being with God, close to God, is what you were made for. You know, home, home is with, isn't it? I mean, home isn't a place. Home is with, it's who you're with, you know? I mean, even Dory knew this, remember? Uh, remember that scene in Finding Nemo? Marlon threatens to leave Dory, and Dory has kind of been obnoxious, and, and he's like, I, you're not helping me, you know? He's got to get away from her. And, um, and Dory gets freaked out, and she begs him to stay, and do you remember what she says? She says, because when I am with you, I am home. Home is with you know, Edward Sharpe's and the Magnetic Zeros saying, home, let me come home. Home is whenever I'm with you. Home is with. And so too, in the, in the biblical narrative, home is getting back to being with God. But in our, in our story, God actually is the one who pursues us. You know, Christianity is not about your pursuit of God. Some of you are new, kind of, again, dipping your toe back in, or maybe you've been invited by a friend. And listen, wherever you're at on your journey, I just want you to know we are glad you're here, and we hope this is an environment where you feel safe to explore some of the big questions in life, because we're at a time and place in our own history. We just need to explore the big questions of life together, and we're glad you are here but, but listen, I want you to know Christianity in its essence, it is not about turning over a new leaf and trying to be a better person and kind of spending a lot of time trying to work your way up to God. Christianity in its essence is about God coming on a pursuit of you. And coming into this world in Jesus, coming near to his creation, bearing the sin of his creation, actually going into exile for his creation, being alienated from the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Being stripped naked and vulnerable and killable on the cross for his creation, so that he might bear our sins, so that he might take our exile, so that he might deal with our alienation, so that through the cross-shaped, extravagant, infinite love of God in Jesus Christ, you might be brought back home. You know, God is home. Psalm 90 says, God is our dwelling place. Isaac Watts, in a famous hymn, said, God is our eternal home. St. Augustine, the North African bishop, said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest or their home in you. Frederick Buechner, a, a brilliant pastor and author, wrote this. He said, it was toward the middle of December, I think, that George Buttrick, this is a pastor, said something in a sermon that has always stayed with me. He said that on the previous Sunday, as he was leaving church to go back to the apartment where he lived, he happened to overhear somebody out on the steps, ask somebody else, are you going home for Christmas? And I can almost see Buttrick with his glasses glittering in the lectern light as he peered out at all of those people listening to him in that large, dim sanctuary, and asked it again. Are you going home for Christmas? And asked it in some sort of way that brought tears to my eyes and made it almost unnecessary for him to move on to his answer to the question, which was that home, finally, is the manger in Bethlehem. The place where at midnight even the oxen kneel. In other words, your longing for home is met in the living God. Jesus is home.